have you seen me dice bag? The Grognard Files. Hello, I'm Dirt the Dice, and this is the Grognard Files podcast, talking bobbins about tabletop RPGs from back in the day. This is a micro-grog pod, with extra bits that didn't quite fit into the main programme. It's one of those supplements that you can never find when you need it, because it somehow got sandwiched between two rule books. In this micro-grog pod... I'll be giving you a potted guide to the history of RuneQuest, the feature game in episode 1 of the Grognard Files. Thank you to everyone who's tweeted me on at the Grognard File or emailed me on dirtthedice at gmail.com saying how much you enjoyed the first episode and how much it chimed with your memories of playing RuneQuest. There's a selection from the postbag at the end of this micro grog pod. Please... If you do enjoy the podcast, leave a five-star review on iTunes and Stitcher Radio to help people find it in the search results. It's very timely that I should be talking about the ups and downs of RuneQuest as it's been in the news recently. At the time of recording, a couple of weeks following Gen Con 2015, it's been announced that the next RuneQuest edition will reunite the rules with its original setting of Glorantha. And what's more, it will be published by KSEM, following an estrangement that has lasted for over a decade. RuneQuest is coming home. It's coming home. Three ducks on the shirt. But why did it leave in the first place? Where did it come from? Where did it go? And where is it going now? All will be revealed. The early years. The story of RuneQuest begins with Greg Stafford and the... Discovery of Glorantha, a mystical world that can be found on the other side of consciousness. Yeah, right. You can tell by that tagline that the world of Glorantha had its origins in the hippy-trippy sensibilities of West Coast in the late 1960s. Greg Stafford was a keen reader of mythology when he was a teenager, and by the time he was at college at Wisconsin, he was writing his own myths and legends. Glorantha is based in the Bronze Age world of Greece, the Middle East, Celtic kingdoms and the ancestor worship of Native American spirituality. Yet it's also a completely fabulous and fantastical setting with its own monsters, events and polytheistic cultures. In Stafford's world, mankind are part of a living myth. So, for example, the bronzed weapons that they use are the actual bones of gods, and their narratives, the gods' narratives, have played out over and over and over. In 1966, he'd written a number of stories set in the world that he conceived, but he faced rejection because publishers believed that, after a period of growth of the swords and sorcery genre, that it was actually on the wane. Stafford's version of fantasy was distinctly quirky too, The tropes and the archetypes from high fantasy were included, but he gave them a mythic twist. There are elves, 
but they're not the lofty version that appear in Tolkien. The elves in Glorantha are a sort of sentient plant life and manifest in many forms. There are trolls, but they have their own distinct ecology too and take different forms such as the mistress race, the dark troll and the stunted runts of the race, the cursed trollkin. It's a flat world. The sun rises in the east, passes over the air, across the sky to set in the west, beneath the seas and the earth, through the underworld before rising in the eastern lands again at dawn. The sun is a living god, sometimes referred to as Yelm, sometimes as Elmal. Very different gods, but it isn't a star. Men are a young species in Glorantha, and only gained sway in the Second Age, about a thousand years ago. Prior to this, there were only one species amongst many. Communication and travel between distinct regions is rare, and most people replay, uh, stay in their homelands. The central theme of Glorantha is the relationship between man and the gods. The gods are a powerful influence on the world, and religion and magic are basic to existence. In the face of rejection letters from publishers, Stafford was struck by another idea. What if he combined his love of war games with his passion for storytelling? He set about creating a narrative-based war game in the Glorantha setting. He put it in the area known as Dragon Pass, and it's one of the most important regions of the world. He created a site of conflict between the barbarian clans against an occupying force known as the Lunar Empire. The Empire are a force from the north, like the Roman Empire, who have already taken over the neighbouring Tarsh, and they are pushing south. They worship the Red Moon. The barbarians are worshippers of Orlanth, the god of air and storms. And they are opposed to the Lunars, as they see them as a force of chaos. Dragon Pass is a very evocative setting, because before the human settlers, it was the site of dragons. In the time of the Empire of the Worm's Friends, dragons were um, uh, ruled the land, but now they're in a kind of slumber with their backs forming the mountain ranges. They're no longer a powerful force in the region, and that all that remains of their civilization are immature forms, such as dragon newts, in various stages of development, such as crested, beaked, and the dinosaurs that lumber around the place are also considered um, immature dragons. In Stafford's game, titled white bear red moon there were other allied units of beastmen uh, remnants from a time when all animals had an equal status intelligent baboon tribes centaurs and humanoid ducks by playing the game it was possible to change the direction of the narrative by shifting the power in the region and recreating battles from history using the different units and hero figures from Stafford's mythic stories. You could lead the barbarians of Sartar to victory, led by Prince Argarth, 
or accept defeat by the Lunars. In keeping with Glorantha's magical setting, powerful effects such as the appearance of a dragon can affect the shift of the balance in the game. Several publishers expressed an interest in developing and publishing the game, but the opportunities eventually withered on the vine because they went bust or there was a change in the commissioning personnel. Desperate and despairing, Stafford had a breakthrough following a tarot reading and a long walk. Like I said, he's a product of the 60s. He decided that he would finance and publish the game himself. He saved $10,000 over a year and in 1975 he formed his own games company, the Chaosium, to print and publish the game. The name came from his living arrangement. He had a young family and he was sharing with another. His life was chaotic and he lived in the shadow of the Oakland Coliseum. His family home was referred to as the Chaosium, so the name seemed fitting for his new company. In 1975, White Bear and Red Moon became a reality. He pressed the first 800 copies by hand on a mimograph machine and sold them at science fiction conventions. And before long, the orders began to flood in and it became popular on the circuit. It's had a number of reprints over the years. It had a full revision in 1981 when it was republished as Dragon Pass. Avalon Hill picked it up in 1983 which must have been a bittersweet victory for Stafford following the rejections he faced. I've recently bought a copy of the Avalon Hill edition and in appearance it's fairly typical of war games from the early 1970s with die-cut cardboard tiles that are so small that I expect them to disappear down the back of the settee. It's the gameplay and the opportunity of changing stories that's quite different. It was followed up by Nomad Gods, a war game set on the plains of Prax, um, neighbouring um, to the Dragon Pass, where rival tribes with affinities to different riding beasts battled between each other. The Buffalo Riders, the Zebra Riders from uh, Pavis County, the Mighty Juggernauts of the Rhino Riders, the High Llama Riders, or the Sable Riders who were sympathetic to the Lunar Empire. Uh, sometime later, at a party with Paul Zimmer, brother of Marion Zimmer Bradley, he began discussing the potential of using Glorantha as a setting for a new RPG. Legend had it that um, Stafford has the used to have the first ever copy of D&D thanks to a contact who was passing by the printers by chance when the first run of the rulebook was being produced. He picked up a copy for Stafford because he knew that he was such a fan of the tabletop hobby and the increased opportunity for players to generate their own stories were an obvious attraction to him. So he began commissioning uh, some game designers to work on a set of rules that would reflect his vision of Glorantha. Steve Perrin was already established as a games designer by the time he was sought out by KSM 
to take on the role as the developer for the new Glorantha system. He'd pipped the monster manual to the post by contributing to All the World's Monsters supplement for D&D. A Glorantha RPG system had already gone through a number of iterations before he was asked to contribute. He brought with him many of the distinctive qualities that distinguished the game from all the others that were available in the early days. The magic system was devised by Ray Turney. He was one of the original team that were working on the game and his concepts remained in the final cut. Perrin was more concerned about delivering a more authentic combat system. When we were 13, the fact that there were members of the anachronistic combat society offered a sense of legitimacy to the type of uh, combat that RuneQuest could create. D&D combat is very subjective and open to interpretation which is fitting for its high fantasy, Tolkien-esque type setting. The use of armour class and varying hit points, depending on the character class, requires an effort to create colourful combat experiences. But with RuneQuest, Perrin created a combat system that was more gritty, more authentic and more satisfyingly tactical. The first and second edition... Perrin and his team of friends exhaustively playtested their game for two years before Stafford insisted that they went into production. By the time it was ready to go to press, Stafford was so tired of checking it and rechecking it that he missed a couple of typos on the back page. One of them was a misspelling of the game itself and the other was the name of the company. The game proved to be a huge success. Chaosium began to grow and expand thanks to the popularity of RuneQuest. In 1980, when the second edition was released with many of the typos amended, the rulebook was fully typeset, which was when we came in, and the second edition is considered in depth in the first episode of the Grognard Files. But despite its shaky start, Chaosium became known for the quality of their supplementary materials. They developed a reputation for commissioning great pieces of work with great writing, inventive encounters, and compared with many publications at the time, the artwork was really good too. It became overwhelming with Games Workshop publishing Chaosium supplements almost on a monthly basis. The Cults of Prax, the Cults of Terror, uh, Pavis, the Big Rubble, Borderlands, Griffin Mounting, Snake Pipe Hollow, each of them promising ever greater insight into the game world of Glorantha. RuneQuest 3 In 1983, RuneQuest began to go in a different direction to Glorantha. A substantial new edition was created and published by Avalon Hill. Chaosium sold the rights to them so that the rules could go mainstream and reach the audiences that they were unable to reach. The rules were separated from the Glorantha setting to become more generic. Stafford retained editorial control over Avalon Hill's future Glorantha-based material, but the rules were now under Avalon Hill's direction. 
It seemed devastating to us at the time because the smartly produced new edition was priced way beyond our pocket money range. The deluxe edition was close to 30 quid and the new fantasy earth setting with its Vikings, ninjas and Roman colosseums seemed uninspiring and drab in comparison to Glorantha. There was the promise of new and exciting Glorantha material in the style that Chaos had made so popular, but they were slow to materialise and the early releases were repackaged and reformatted versions of the Chaos supplements with all the life boiled out of them. Despite the professional veneer of Avalon Hill products, Nothing can quite take away the sense that they're typeset like a heating maintenance manual rather than a gateway to new worlds. It was fairly devastating for KSCM too. When they struck a deal with Avalon Hill, they reduced their equity stake. Previously they were getting 40% on sales. Now they were only getting 10% of the sales. RuneQuest was no longer the cash cow that it once was. And by the time that RuneQuest 3rd edition was released, our attention was on other games, so we never really were compelled to buy the box sets. We'd also turned our backs on Glorantha, and instead we were running RuneQuest rules on alternative worlds, such as Harn, and our homebrew Harn ripoff, Inura. In 1987, a few years after the Avalon Hill version, Games Workshop in the UK purchased the RuneQuest 3 rules and began packaging them for a UK audience. This was a boom period for the tabletop era in the UK. Ian Livingstone and Steve Jackson had moved away from Games Workshop to concentrate on their own projects. The company that they had founded was beginning to get confidence in developing its own products. It had been a covers band for years, and now it was playing more and more of its own material. Warhammer was being developed as a business model that could unite the sale of miniatures with rule books, and as a consequence, its products that it published under licence were second-rate and lukewarm. In 1987, they produced three hardback books containing the RuneQuest 3 rules, Basic, Advanced and Monsters. With all three books blighted by artwork that had been recycled from White Dwarf or else poorly executed commission stuff, not the kind of approach that we'd grown used to with Games Workshop. The chopping up of the rules made some of the elements unintelligible too. The rules for sorcery, a magic system that was new to the third edition, was unfathomable. And we abandoned these rules altogether. Where was the KSCM hotline when you needed it? In fact, we only ever played the third edition rules a handful of times and ignored many of the innovations such as the literally tiresome fatigue rules. Authentic maybe, but it made everyone weary of bookkeeping after every round. From 1988 to 2010, there was a huge gap in our game playing 
when real life got in the way. It's a pity because during the early 90s there was a RuneQuest renaissance. Looking at some of the supplements that were developed in the early 90s, the quality of the RuneQuest supplements produced by Avalon Hill made a significant step improvement. Sun County, the River Cradles, Strangers in Prax, Shadows on the Borderlands and the brilliant Dorister campaign with Sandy Peterson as one of the major contributors are among the best supplements produced. But they passed us by because we weren't playing anymore. What's striking about these supplements of the 90s is that perfect bringing together of an open approach to the game world with interesting details about locations and personalities which is combined with very good stories. They're interesting scenarios that really challenge the players to think differently and and role play. There are details of the worldview of the different social classes and cultures in the setting which are fascinating but are somewhat at odds with the crunchy rules of RuneQuest. Doristo is particularly fascinating because the Risklands, where the Orlanthi barbarians have settled on the very brink of chaos infestation, creates an edgy environment where the adventurers need to worry about where the next meal is coming from the family stead, as, as well as worrying about being attacked in the night by scorpion men. It's a credit to the authors from this period that they were able to convince Avalon Hill of the potential of the game in the face of declining sales and produce some really imaginative adventures in Glorantha. This change of emphasis towards story rather than simulation marked a further point of divergence where the RuneQuest rules and mechanics and Glorantha as a setting took separate paths. At the time, in the late uh, 90s, there were various financial and rights wrangling taking place. Avalon Hill was bought out by Hasbro. And in 98, Stafford left Chaosium, the company that he created, taking Glorantha with him. He formed Isaris and looked to license the game world uh, to sympathetic friends. From the point of view of the art of uh, Glorantha, Stafford began to realise that the RuneQuest mechanics were ossifying the potential of uh, the setting. He wanted to explore the potential of high-level interactions with the gods. In the early editions of the rules, hero quests and hero wars were mentioned, but never really explained. There was a promise of future supplements that would describe them, but they never materialised. Apparently, there were plans for a super version of uh, of RuneQuest for higher-level characters that had been on the drawing board for years, but this was abandoned. It was abandoned in favour of Hero Wars, which was revised into Hero Quest by Robin D. Laws and produced by Moon Design. In this game, the Games Master becomes the narrator, and players develop characters using key words which are tested in situations on the roll of a d20. The difficulty of situations is determined by mutual agreement 
based on what would be a good result for the story. The concept works really well for Glorantha. Fourth edition. RuneQuest disappeared for several years. Moon Design produced some handsome compendiums of Chaosium's Glorantha classic supplements. They were perfect bound with some additional illustrations, painstakingly recreated with some added material. They remain incredibly collectible, and the PDFs are available from the Moon Design website. It wasn't until the mid-noughties that the rule system was revamped by Mongoose. The rules were reissued in slim hardback volumes, loads and loads and loads of them, and although the core rules don't really feature Glorantha, there are stat blocks for Glorantha creatures, such as Brews and Blooming Ducks, for example. In conjunction with Isaris, they produced lots of Glorantha supplements set in the Second Age rather than the Third Age, when most of the RuneQuest 2 and RuneQuest 3 supplements were set. The rules had a makeover, removing some of the key elements from Chaosium's basic role-playing system, including the resistance table, and adding some innovations such as opposed roles and hero points. The whole effort is a neat, efficient but uninspiring read, and it would be difficult to believe that anyone would actually start playing RuneQuest based on this edition of the rules. It's like a, a Sharon Osborne facelift. You know that work's been done and there's some of the old stuff in there, but you can't really be bothered working out why or how. Remarkably, there's a name check for, game, uh, for Greg Stafford in the acknowledgement, but no recognition of Perrin or Turney. Fifth edition. Moon Design drafted in Lawrence Whitaker and Pete Nash to completely rewrite the rules. The 5th edition, confusingly issued as RuneQuest 2, is a marked departure from the previous edition. They are very good games designers who have a wonderfully balanced approach to presenting rules in an easy-to-grasp format. They also developed a relationship between runes and magic in a manner that was never really clear in the earlier editions. Again, the rules stand alone, but it was complemented by many volumes of Glorantha Second Age rules. They also show a considerable respect for Perrin's original concepts for RuneQuest combat, as they make it clear that combat is deadly, the rules should allow for tactical decisions, and that it should be fun and cinematic in its description. Blimey, it's RuneQuest 6! Moon Design handed the licence over to Nash and Whitaker, who substantially rewrote their own rules and produced a handsome volume of the rules under the imprint of the design mechanism. They've returned to a sensible numbering. RuneQuest 6 built substantially on their adaptation of the rules, fully divorcing it from Glorantha in a satisfying way. It's the first time that the ghost of Glorantha isn't marbling through the meat of the game. It introduces even more choices, more motivations for characters, and a magical system that actually feels magical rather than mechanical. 
As die-hard grognards who don't really like change, we never thought we'd move away from the second edition rules, but we've recently adopted the RuneQuest 6 rules and found that they fit perfectly our style of play. We love the special combat effects and how fights can twist and turn depending on the choices made by the PCs and the NPCs. In this latest edition of the rules, they're very adaptable to different settings. As well as their own ancient world setting, there's a version of Mythic Britain available and they've recently released a, a version set in the world of Luther Arkwright. Right now, Glorantha has never been stronger too. Uh, Greg Stafford handed over the baton to Jeff Richard, who's worked hard to create the ultimate heavyweight guide to Glorantha with everything you needed to know about the setting and, frankly, other bits that you weren't really bothered about. It's a colossal effort. All those anxieties that we had in the early 80s about not knowing enough about the setting and concern that somehow we would paint ourselves into an impossible corner have been obliterated with this definitive guide. There's also been a burst of fevered activity. There's a Glorantha version of Hero Quest, a Glorantha version of uh, 13th Age, a popular and engrossing Glorantha app for Android and Apple OS, The King of Dragon Pass, which is a, a narrative strategy game that can kill hours. Greg Stafford and Sandy Peterson stepped into KSEM to rescue the troubled Call of Cthulhu 7th edition project. As part of their plan, Moon Design have been given a controlling role in the company. Glorantha has come home. It looks like RuneQuest is coming with them too. Future editions will be branded with KSEM. The much-anticipated Adventures in Glorantha Supplement for RuneQuest 6 is likely to be released as a full set of rules. It looks like it's going to get better and better as it's supported by enthusiastic and imaginative games designers who have an eye for quality. And it's fitting that our first game of RuneQuest 6 rules was a revisit of Gringle's Pawn Shop, the first game we'd played. This time, it was the version that's included in the Moon Design Sartar Companion. Now, in this version, there's more motivation for Gringle's Tormentors, and more motivation for the player characters to intervene. The reputation of their clan's ancestors are at stake. But I couldn't resist adding um, Big Club, the centaur, from the original scenario, and of course, the famous duck bandit, Pinfeather, who's been killed by our group more times than your Brynner's character in Westworld. Despite all my protests, I am the games master who's most likely to stick a duck in it. So, that's a potted history of RuneQuest. I know that it's not very grognardy to say this, but I actually think that the best of the game is yet to come. The best that the game has to offer might be in the future. How exciting is that? The post bag! 
It's been great to get feedback on the first episode of the podcast. So thank you to all of you who've taken the time to share the link and let the Grognard Massive know that this show exists. Sat here in my den under the stairs at Dirk Towers, it's good to know that there are people out there listening and interested in the podcast. Please get in touch, and even better, please leave uh, that five-star review on iTunes and Stitcher Radio so that more people can find the podcast. Lots of people have commented about at Daily Dwarf's contribution and uh, how F.C. Parker in Cardiff conjured up memories for many listeners. It's the dusty shells and the clamour to look at the miniatures in particular. I find it remarkable that At Daily Dwarf lives a million miles away from Bolton in a place called Wales. Yet his experiences are very close to our own. At, uh, let's, let's have a look here, uh, right here in the post bag, yeah, at um, DirkTheDice at gmail.com, uh, Michael Beck got in touch to say, Hello, just a note to say I listened to your new Grognard Files podcast and it was a rush of nostalgia. While you were gaming in Bolton, discovering RuneQuest and Call of Cthulhu, I was doing exactly the same here in Vancouver. Unlike you, I was at college age and mainly playing with players as young as 14, a daughter of another player, and as old as mid-50s. Still, the joy and wonder was there. I started with D&D in 1978, but by 81 and 82, I discovered RuneQuest and Call of Cthulhu. My gaming world was changed by these games, and I couldn't get enough. Also, White Dwarf was my drug of choice for gaming, and I religiously sought it out for its amazing content. Dragon couldn't compare to the delightfully twisted and wondrous writing within these dazzling pages. So, thanks for the trip down memory lane. It sparked some old brain cells. I'm still at it, running two weekly games, one being a RuneQuest 6 based fantasy pirate game, and the other being a Call of Cthulhu based World War Cthulhu. Look forward to the second episode, have fun, and keep the fumble table handy. Okay, let's have a look. Uh, thanks for that. Uh, let's have a look here in the rest of the post bag. Well, over on the uh, the design mechanism forum, as you might expect, they were quite keen for me to uh, spend more time talking about our experiences with RuneQuest 6, which I promise to do in the future. So here's, uh, here's something by uh, somebody on there called Skull. Very enjoyable, despite the fact that I never played RuneQuest 2, and I got into role-playing some ten years after the release of RuneQuest 2 with RuneQuest 3. One comment about ducks. 
One of the reasons I like them is that every joke that your players come up with about ducks could also be told by the characters, by pretty much every intelligent being in Glorantha, apart from ducks. Ducks are a bad joke. They're despised, belittled and ridiculed. And for this, they're pessimistic, bitter and resentful. They know that nobody takes them seriously. They know that everybody expects them to be bad news and often decide to live the part. It was interesting to hear about the moral dilemma related to your rerun of the Borderlands campaign and the ethnic cleansing of the Newtlings. We never played Borderlands back in the day, but I ran it for my group a couple of years ago and my players had similar thoughts. The PCs had no trouble carrying out the missions, but the players did realise that they weren't exactly an unequivocal force for good. Well, there we go, that's that skull on the design mechanism uh, forum. Uh, there's not a lot of support for my attitude towards uh, ducks out there, but hey, what does the uh, collective hive mind of the internet know? I mean, they find uh, cats falling over funny. Okay, what's uh, what's next? Well, this is next in the post bag. Um, this this is from the uh, site armchairadventurerblog.com, um, and this is a this is actually um, was in a Facebook comment as well. Um, but this is from a, this was this I, I was bowled over by this because this is from a, a white dwarf contributor. No less. So, here goes. I am absurdly pleased. I just finished listening to the first episode of The Grognard Files. It's a podcast in which a chap from Bolton and his friends reminisce about their days as young gamers in the 1980s and talk about how it felt then and how it felt feels now replaying some of the old scenarios. I remember going through lots of the same reactions as they did. The host is, however, wrong about ducks, and his entire group is wrong about the request companion and the overall joys of Glorantham Manusiae. Still, it inspires me to think again about using one of the newer versions to run something, not necessarily something uh, Glorantham, I'll get my copy of RuneQuest 6 out and uh, I'll see if I feel less irritated by it this time. Young people today, they've no idea what proper grognardy is. The thing that makes me absurdly pleased, however, is that I get a mention. I don't get nominated for the best RuneQuest article in White Dwarf, but I do get an honourable mention for Rumble at the Tin Inn my very first sale of a role-playing article. Honestly, I'm easily pleased nowadays. Next day, next the show will be Call of Cthulhu, and I may make this a habit. I'll certainly give it a shout-out um, in the podcast that I do with Roger. Improvise Radio Theatre with Dice. And that was uh, that was from Michael Kuhl, no less, who... Um, 
if you remember from the first episode uh, he, he uh, wrote uh, Rumble Tin In so I was delighted to get that so thank you uh, Michael for writing that so that's everything from the post bag this time uh, but please do get in touch um, I'm Dirt The Dice on Twitter at the at the Grognard file um, or you can write to me at dirtthedice at gmail.com or visit the blog at armchairadventureblog.com so that's everything from this uh, micro grog pod not quite so micro as I thought but nevertheless it, that's it and uh, please subscribe and follow on twitter to uh, get the next episode in the next couple of weeks uh, because it's all about Call of Cthulhu and uh, there's some interesting stuff in there and uh, you can uh, go back and learn about our struggles to get our heads around uh, this new game back in the early 80s. Okay, that's it for this one. So thank you very much for listening. And until next time, goodbye. <laughs>